Welcome to Profiles in Social Innovation, spotlighting local leaders delivering sustainable solutions to complex problems, brought to you by the University of Maryland, Baltimore, in the heart of downtown Baltimore City. I'm Jim Kucher, and I'm the Program Director of the Graduate Certificate in Social Entrepreneurship at UMB's Graduate School. UMB is introducing a new four-course certificate in social entrepreneurship, and to celebrate that launch, we're reprising a series of conversations with some of the brightest lights on the social entrepreneurship stage. On today's profile, we're talking with Jamie Wooten, the founder of Collectively. As described by Carl Thomas in the Afro, Wooten has been a trusted advisor to many of the world's most well-respected faith-based and nonprofit organizations. Having organized and documented social movements throughout the United States, the United Kingdom, and parts of Africa. An entrepreneur at heart and by blood, Jamie has gone on to found and operate several Baltimore-based organizations geared towards social change. One of those is something called Collectively, which is described as a faith-based social change organization that centers black genius, narrative power, social networks, and resource mobilizations. One of the many interesting facts about this venture is its spelling, which is C-L-L-C-T-I-V-L-Y. So my first question is that there's an apparent lack of vowels in the name. So I just want to understand, Jamie, what do you have against the letter E or the letter O that brought you to this point? Nothing, really. I'm just really (laughs) trying to... um... Trying to come up with a brand and made system. Yeah, I used to be a director of an organization called the Collective Banking Group. And I tried to, when I was there, to try to get them to rebrand to the collective. So I was like, well, I'm going to do something with collective. And so we became collectively and just wanted to be a little creative with it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, it's fascinating to me with, with, with branding in general. There's so many people that so much spend so much time on branding and worrying about it and being anxious about it. And at the end of the day, it's just, yeah, we just did it for fun, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, there's a great debate in entrepreneurship and in entrepreneurship education uh, about whether entrepreneurs are born or made. And I kind of think that there's a little of both in it. But um, in your case, it was clearly somewhat genetic uh, that you developed this streak. So uh, talk a little bit about about the, the background for you in terms of the family and those kinds of things and how that informs your work. My, my dad dropped out in eighth grade as the oldest to begin to work and take care of family. He went on to open um, five dry cleaners and several nightclubs in the city. My mom's um, a florist. She um, still at 85 is still out there putting out deliveries. Oh, God bless her. In Baltimore, yes, he loves it. Uh, my sister um, opened two pizza delivery stores here in the city, one in West Baltimore, the other across the street from Baltimore City um, Community College. So. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Everybody is doing something in entrepreneurship in the family. Yeah, so the dinner table was a conversation about marketing and profit and loss and, and, and all that good stuff, I imagine. It should have been more that it wasn't necessary. It was more like, you know, learning through, you know, immersion, just throwing in it. Yeah, I hear you. So um, you've been quoted as saying that your first dream job was in banking. And, and that's not a place that's really known for for dreamers. <laughs> and I can't think of a lot of young folks that would say, hey, you know, when I grow up, I want to be. A, so how is that? How is that your dream job when you first landed that job a number of years ago? Oh, 
um, well, it's collective banking group, so it was working with about 200 churches, um, banks, as well as other strategic partners. And for me, again, the collective banking group was founded by um, Reverend Jonathan Weaver. And to be mm-hmm. able to be a young professional and to be, serve your own community, um, I grew up in here in the black church. So there's so many things that align with my values and the way in which I felt the church was positioned to mobilize resources. Um, there was already sort of a, a process of tithes and offering of collecting money. And, mm-hmm. and so I thought this was a great opportunity to get to mobilize resources and do some development in community. So it was really more about the community piece and banking was just kind of the vehicle to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's kind of what I felt. So, um, I, you know, I looked at my calendar this morning and, and I actually missed this yesterday, which is unusual for me, but yesterday was the seventh anniversary uh, of the uprising that occurred after Freddie Gray died in police custody. Uh, and Baltimore obviously has been forever changed uh, because of that. But I also get the sense that you are forever changed because of that, and that it was a it was a pivotal moment, not just for for the city that you love so much, but for you in terms of your walk and your path. Is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I think so. Now I didn't realize it too. Maybe six months or so later, after the uprising, um, I was asked by Duke University to come and speak on lament, and I sort of put my presentation together the night before, and I, I put a picture in there of my daughter. I mean, it's a picture of my daughter downtown with police all lined up behind it. Mm. And when I'm speaking, they're up on the big sort of jumbotron. And, and I kind of turn around and look and went oh full tears. It was just like, oh my it's God. when it hit of like, you know, I've been doing this work. I was in Ferguson as well. And it wasn't until seeing the picture of my daughter that it really, I really understood the impact of, of this moment of like what my children were being sort of brought up into. Mm, yeah. But I think there was also, I get the sense it was also a pivotal moment for you in terms of your work. Absolutely. Like it was during that time that we created Baltimore United for Change. That was a coalition of grassroots community-based organizations in the city. And um, I um, started the Skills Bank and the Skills Bank was sort of an on-ramp for folks who weren't necessarily on the ground. And he would say, how can I plug in? I'm a mental health professional. I'm a teacher. I'm a photographer. So we had over 260 individuals and organizations join the Skills Bank. Um, we used it internally as a coalition. And the goal was collectively when we launched in 2019 was how can we make it more a face-forward platform? How could we cast a broader net to all Black-led organizations? And, and that's what we did. Our first phase was the sort of asset map directory of Black-led organizations serving in Baltimore. Right. So, so there's a huge element of, of, of ecosystem uh, that you're doing. Uh, we spoke a couple of weeks ago in, in this same series of Profiles in Social Innovations to Jess Gartner from Allowview, and she described her work as, as plumbing, right? And it's, it, it's, it's not particularly sexy, but it's really something that needs to be done. And in some ways, that's, that's similar to what you're doing in terms of ecosystem, making all these connections, which is not the sort of thing that necessarily gets you top billing or even top dollar, but it's it's hugely important uh, in the community. So here you are, 2019, 
and you sign up for the social innovation lab at Hopkins. And I looked back at that cohort and I was uh, actually one of the folks that interviewed that cohort. Uh, and you had Bree Jones of Parity, who was killing it. You had Ashley Williams of Infinite Focus Schools, who was killing it. You got Anthony Waters of More Water Co. that's killing it. That must have been one powerful room to be part of in that cohort. It was. It was definitely amazing. And I was really impressed of their commitment to justice. Like it was just folks who are developing their business models, but these were definitely some folks who really care about community and uh, have business models that, again, community is first. And so I was honored to be a part of that group. Yeah, yeah, it was powerful, powerful room. How, how did that experience, I mean, you know, this is something that obviously we, we, we do in, at UMB in our program too, but how did that experience of coaching and mentoring impact you and your work? Because it's not, it's not always comfortable, right, getting that kind of feedback. Uh, I know the Social Innovation Lab folks well enough that I know that, you know, they're not, they're not an easy audience. It's not an easy sell. So, you know, how did that sort of feel and how did that impact your work? It, it was great. I think the, the what I took out the most from that was the, the opportunity to do interviews. So I did over 100 interviews of <laughs> folks in community. And so it was great to kind of slow down, um, you know, look at what we had done thus far, begin to see, you know, what does community think about the word really? Who is the market? Are we really providing what they're asking for? And so it was great to, to hear from, from community and go through that process. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk a lot in our program about how it's never a good idea to parachute into a community with a solution and just say, hi, I'm here. I know what's best for you. Here, do this. Um, so, you know, we, we certainly applaud that uh, on your head now. So here it is. There was 2019. So now it's three years later. Uh, and here you are. You're on Capitol Hill. You're getting all sorts of press. You're speaking on YPR. You're just sort of generally just killing things left, right, and sideways, which is which is fantastic. Um, and and obviously, it's a clear indication of the of the demand, right, of the need for for what you're doing. Um, but rapid growth can sometimes be a blessing and a curse at the same time. Uh, are, are you experiencing that that duality in in, in where your work is now? Um, I think I feel good about our pace. I feel like we're right on pace where we wanted to be. I always said we we're going to spend the first two years building relationships. And we did that. We, through our Michael Grant program, which is all participatory and no strings attached, has given us the opportunity to be in conversation with and build stronger and deeper relationships with community. And now we're on year three. And I said year three was about being more intentional about now what is some of the work we want to do together with community. So I feel right on pace with, you know, to an article you recently shared around scaling deep. And that sort of has been our model of build relationships, take it slow enough um, to, to build and deepen the relationships before we try to take it to the next level. Right. Well, and, you know, scale is such an interesting conversation. Um, and, and I think in in this country in particular, we're, we're focused constantly on make it bigger, you know, okay, if it works here, let's take it to these other cities and this, that, and the other. And, and you're obviously choosing to, as, as we've talked about, scale deep. So can you talk a little bit more about what that means for you and what that means for the organization? Yes, like we've been asked to go to Durham, North Carolina, to Cincinnati, Ohio, to Chicago, 
uh, Toronto, so quite a few places around the country and around the world. And I always say I needed my first three years to really build relationships. And because I think for all that we've done, it's really the next work that I think is the most important work. And that really is some of the cohorts of deepening trust, relationships, um, some of the trauma that is in community. That's the work that I'm really mm-hmm. most excited about. So mm-hmm. for me, it's really been, you know, I would say folks work in silos and this fragmentation leads to duplication and duplication leads to wasted resources, our time, talent, and treasure. And mm-hmm. some folks have been harmed. Like I hear, you know, groups that don't work with others. And so it's been important to like take time to understand like what's going on in community and how to, again, deepen those relationships and trust because uh, folks have been hurt so that we can sure. um, sort of stand for the long, the long term. Well, you know, and, and, and Baltimore in particular, you know, so much, so much trauma, not just in, in recent past, but, you know, you go back uh, to uh, the assassination of the Reverend Dr. King and the fact that North Avenue in Baltimore was literally on fire uh, in, in those days and even further back uh, to, you know, the city that invented redlining, right? So there's, there's so much collective trauma. And, and that's a whole separate challenge from some of the stuff that you're better known for in terms of, you know, the, the micro grants and that sort of stuff. So how, how, are you, how are you unraveling those knots? What specifically is going on in, in the work that you're doing to, to address those bigger issues? I think for now, again, it's, it's, it's the relationships and now that what we'll move to is some of the educational components. So looking at some of the history and then looking at the ways in which we have as a community always mobilized resources. So whether it was um, SUSUs or the Black Church or mm. other alliance, mutual aid and um, other benefit associations that have come together to mobilize resources, we're really pulling on those traditions to, again, build trust and mobilize the resources within communities, but also, you know, tell the story of how we got here, I think is important, so we don't uh, repeat it again. Mm, yeah, yeah, well, that's, you know, if you're not a student of history, you're doomed to repeat it, right? So, um, somebody who sort of looks at what you're doing from a from a distance, you know, a Google search or whatever, um, would kind of look at what you're doing with all these micro grants and all this and assume that you're, you know, somebody like Bill Gates or Mackenzie Scott or, you know, this this huge pile of wealth that is sort of reflexively associated with grant making. And, and that's that doesn't seem to be what you're doing. So how does how does all this work? I mean, you know, how do these dollars show up at your place so that you can then distribute them to help sort of fix some of these problems? Sure. Like I. You know, we launched in 2019, and in 2018, I was part of a retreat called Old Money, New Systems, and it was individuals of high net worth, it was individuals of philanthropy and activists coming together to sort of reimagine what philanthropy could look like, and while I was there, we created a fund, and I think my portion of that fund was about $8,000, so in my sort of collectively model, the fund was the last thing on our, our, our phases. But since I had this eight thousand dollars, like, well, I could start with a micro grant. Like, I need four thousand dollars more, and I could do a thousand dollar grant every month. <laughs> and we we were able to do that for for year one and sort of operationalize what it looks like to do a micro grant in Baltimore, have the community vote, the whole participatory model. And then, of course, you know, twenty twenty hit, and you had the pandemic, 
You had the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and mm-hmm. the world begin to say, like, you know, when I, in 2019, folks were asking why black lead? Why, you know, why are you focusing on black lead? When COVID hit and the pandemic, and again, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the world began to know why. And we begin to get even more resources. So we have a giving circle of about 60 members that commit to us. We have individual donors. We've done a lot of crowdfunding. And now we've had some philanthropic partners as well um, mm-hmm. come alongside us. And, it, and it's all grant-based. There's no investor VC kind of model in this where you guys take a slice when the thing grows up and, and becomes uh, more substantial, right? It's all just, here's the money, go do good stuff. Correct. So it's all no strings attached grants. We've done grants from 500. Our largest has been 24,000. And now in partnership with Morgan State and the Family League, we do about $100,000 with this Adaptive Village Small Grants Program. Mm-hmm. And it's all it's all small money, which is absolutely vital when you're in the early stages of, of, of building a venture. But, you know, the other thing that I think is interesting, and you mentioned it a second ago, is, is the no strings attached, right? I mean, the world of philanthropy is um, often criticized for a grant-making process that puts money into specific boxes that are not always uh, as helpful for the, the, the startup venture as they could be. And, and you've chosen not to impose that particular criteria. Talk about how you got to that particular point. Yeah, I think just through my own experiences, for one, it was just like, <laughs> like this is too much. This is too much for a $5,000 grant or for $25,000. And I always say, like, we start with impact. We start with folks in community who have a history of serving in community. And I always say, you know, they're going to do this work whether, you know, they receive a micro grant or not. Like, it's not our micro grant that's changing, you know, whether they go about doing the work in community. What I hear most is thanks for seeing me. Right. So I think mm-hmm. it definitely has been, you know, the wind beneath the wings. Uh, uh, many have, have said to us that they just to be acknowledged when you've been doing this work for so long is important. And we also just know the economic reality to say, like, look, if you have to pay your rent, pay your rent. You've been serving in community. If you need a break, take a break. And so we want to make sure that folks, again, who are often pouring from an empty cup, that we're also investing in them. As we talked a little bit earlier about my own family. My, I lost my dad at 56 and my sister at 53. So there's something to mm. this sort of bootstrapping mentality while we're sort of held for being resilient. It also is a life and death situation. And we want to make sure we're investing in, again, a culture of health and supporting those um, on the ground doing this work. Most recently, we've done um, We Got Your Back Award to support a black woman-led um, organization here in Baltimore. She receives a $2,000 a month stipend. Again, no strings mm-hmm. attached. Again, so if it's rent, if it's child care, if it's a certification she needs to go get, um, she, she's doing that work now. That's that's amazing. And, and you know, the, um, the, the whole notion of the no strings attached thing, and, and part of that, if I'm hearing correctly, is just, you know, hey, it's not that much money, so why are we, ha- why are we hassling folks? But the other thing I, I loved in what you just said was the, the simple act of acknowledging their, their humanness, right, and, and, and their work, which is, which is a huge issue in the communities you work in, right, just to, as you said, be seen 
and to be recognized is is a huge issue for for folk that have not have been marginalized forever. So it should be somewhat yes. disruptive too, like so a small amount, but we also trying to be somewhat disruptive in philanthropy <laughs> to say that you can trust people, <laughs> you you can put money out there and support. So you know, again, our largest grant is twenty four thousand dollars. That's no strings attached as well, and um, you can do this. You can do this with people who are making an impact in community. I hope you're finding today's conversation inspiring. If you have a heart to make the world a better place but aren't quite sure where to start, the Graduate School at the University of Maryland, Baltimore may be able to help. UMB recently launched a four-course graduate certificate in social entrepreneurship, a fully online program that provides the practical skills to drive social impact with sustainable funding. The program is affordable, it's accessible, and it's enrolling now for the fall of 2024. Our social entrepreneurship curriculum provides the fundamental tools and competencies needed to take ideas to action and prepares you to build your own venture or lead change in an existing organization. If you'd like to begin to build your own profile in social innovation, contact us at graduate.umaryland.edu innovation. Now let's rejoin the conversation. So, you know, we talked earlier about, about how you build the trust and how you heal. So the, the method for delivering these funds is also a, a very intentional part of the, creating the healing and creating the trust um, that, that, that needs to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, yeah. it's, it's important, again, when it's rough. Like, I've heard the stories of folks who have had relationships with, with foundations. Um, I've been a part of several pitch competitions where I've seen black and brown people under ass. And under ass because not because I don't think mm-hmm. they understand their worth, but they don't believe they're going to get what they deserve in the first place. So it's like, if I just get 50, I need 300,000. But if I get 50, like, I'll make magic happen because we've always done that. So I think it's important that we, you know, we fund folks like we like we want them to win. Right, right. Yeah, the the the, uh, the loaves and fishes miracle, right? You know, it, it, it may have been a miracle or it could have just been people sharing their sandwiches, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating stuff. So, you know, a lot of what you do makes it sound like this is a, a, a cooperative. Um, so, I mean, I'm a fan of the cooperative form of organizing. We just had a piece published a couple of weeks ago about that. But um, it's not really a co-op in the traditional sense of a co-op, is it? No, not at all. I think that what we're looking at is sort of participatory grant making, participatory leadership frameworks like Ella Baker, decentralized ways of organizing community. And our goal has always been to exit to community. And so, again, first year relationships, second year, about a third year now, about being intentional, developing, developing this sort of action network, this support network. And while we're doing this now, it's around the education of what does it mean to be participatory? What is it? What are the values and the principles? So we, mm-hmm. I was on a panel where someone asked me, like, why didn't I just start as a co-op? And I just thought, I don't think you can skip the political education component. So I thought it was more important to mm. operationalize it and then exit to the community. So I'm a fan of Exit Community. We had Jonathan Moore on uh, one, of, one of our prior sessions, and, and he and I riffed on that. But for those that may not have caught that, talk a little more about what 
exit community, exit to community means both conceptually and, and what it means to you specifically in your organization? Yeah, definitely. I think for me, it, def- it means that instead of sort of growing up a business and exiting to businesses or shareholders, you now turn this over to our members or to community. And so we think that this is a good model that we can we can scale. Again, we've been asked to go to several other cities. We just believe in a place-based model, and we believe that those um, in community should be the ones controlling this. And so we'll build it up, we'll operationalize it, and then we'll give over control. Right now, actually, we're working on um, a liberatory methodology um, with Lisa Beautiful Struggle, the Association of Black Social Workers, and mm-hmm. Dr. Jerry Peake will begin to come in and help us with uh, liberation um, metric and rubric. So we'll start to use some mm-hmm. of these in our grant making, but also as we begin to build community and prepare community to govern based on shared values and shared principles. Can you share any of what the early thinking is on, on how you how you measure liberation? I'm fascinated by the concept that you're going to try. And, and, and the geek, the, the uh, you know, the social innovation geek in me goes, ooh, <laughs> how are they going to do that? Yeah, right now, like what Dr. Jerry Peake is going to begin doing is some brainstorming sessions, some concept mapping. So we'll begin to ask, you know, folks who are part of this, what does liberation look like? What, you know, how should we be measuring? What should the outcomes be? And so the community will begin to decide themselves what this looks like. And so I, I would say towards a liberatory methodology because right. it will right. it will continue to evolve over time. So, but but even there, your your the, the voice of community is is loud and strong. In okay, so how are we going to measure all this? Uh, and I want to circle back because I think we sort of skipped over this whole participatory grant making, and you sort of hinted at it a minute ago. Uh, with the voting, but uh, expound on that a, a little bit more, if you don't mind. Sure. It's um, sort of a method where those who are most um, to the closest to the ground and to the issue and the problem should be part of the solutions or process. Um, often, again, in grant making, it is foundations that are making the decisions on behalf of community. So our model around participatory is inviting community in to be part of the decision making process. So with one of our grants, the Black Futures Micro Grant, which organizations can submit a two to three minute video, and then the community at large votes. There's been over 70,000 votes cast thus far. Yeah, that happens every every month. Uh, we did the Baltimore Black Lives Solidarity Fund, where we convened an advisory board to begin to make some of those decisions. We got your back. We convened uh, a group of all women to, to nominate and support um, and to to review those applications and decide on that that winner. So everything is done in committee by a collective of folks that come from community to decide what's what's best. So so rather than a small group of folks in a conference room deciding who's going to get the grant, you actually literally throw that out onto the internet uh, and 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 have folks vote. And then you also mentioned crowdfunding. That's a, a similar concept, but a little bit different there, because that's folks actually putting putting money in, but it's still very much community, very much small-led kind of a process. And I think all of that leads back to something I heard you say one time about, you know, the uh, the, the collection plate in the church, right? I mean, there's, there's kind of an analogy there in your life, isn't it? Absolutely. So born and raised in the church, um, my mom's an evangelist. 
Um, I've worked nationally. I have an organization called Kinetic, so I've done a lot of consultant um, issue education work with faith-based organizations across um, the country and, and movements in and around the world and, um, and movement spaces. And so for me, I really am, you know, this is not a philanthropic institution. It really is me pulling from the values and traditions within community and just trying to replicate them in, in this moment in time using what digital tools we have to be able to do that. Yeah, it's fascinating how those things have sort of been facilitated by by what we have available digitally. Um, you know, we, we we talked a little bit at the beginning, and we sort of bounced off of this a couple of times, but I want to get to this a little bit more deeply um, with the notion of existing solutions and existing operations and all that and sort of, you know, uh, I heard somebody years ago say that one of the concerns that they've had about Baltimore for a long time is, is uh, we don't share our sugar, right? So, you know, how does that experience shape what you're doing? Is, is that an accurate perception for you? Is, and, and what are you sort of doing to see how you can get a little more sugar sharing? Yeah, one of the things that we've put together is um, collective design which would be a cohort that goes through these ideas of scarcity versus abundance, um, collaboration, um, history of tr trauma, the history. Because I think sometimes we want to share or build coalitions and we want to rush into them without building the, the type of relationship that we need to build. So what we're trying to do is just be more intentional and slow down and build some of the relationships and the trust that you need to share sugar. And I think a lot of folks, I think, mean well, but rush in and don't take the time to build and deepen relationships. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes build something that already exists across the street or around the corner. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons, like, we started our, with our first phase, sort of asset map directory, where we now mapped over 200 black-led organizations based on their area of focus and neighborhood as a way for, one, again, what I heard in 2015, foundations just didn't know who was on the ground, but two, it's for us to do our own due diligence. So if there's someone in community and there's a problem that you see and you now have um, an idea, something you want to implement, you need to have a starting point to say like, oh, okay, there's 20 mentoring programs. Maybe I should be partnering or collaborating, or there is a niche in the ecosystem that I, I consider. A lot of this really and you hear this term kicked around a lot about, you know, closing the racial wealth gap, which is certainly something historically that exists. And there's lots of statistics about, um, you know, differences in, in wealth, even, you know, when you have an education and this, that, and the other. Um, so how much of this is about closing the racial wealth gap and how much of this is about something perhaps beyond that? Yeah, I think fundamentally it is about, organizing community, right? I think that you first have to organize um, your strengths before we can even really, because for me, fundamentally, this is about power. This is what Dr. King began to talk about that. He said the plantation was created by those, the plantation in our cities was created by those who had power over the powerless, right? So mm -hmm. fundamentally, this becomes a question of power. And so for me, um, the first thing we must do is organize. So part of this mm. work around taking our time building relationships, building trust, it's organizing so we have a seat at the table to demand some of the things that we need, uh, particularly in this, in this moment. Like there has been, an, there is an imbalance of power. So even 
um, when philanthropy may invite you to the table, there's still this imbalance of power to the point that we're creating our own right, liberation framework and rubric and metrics so we then can invite philanthropy in to our table to have discussions <laughs> with community and saying, if you're serious about this, this work, this is what community has, has decided. So it's, it's very important. I mean, the racial wealth gap or some would call economic apartheid, right? The ways in mm. our communities have historically been redlined, disinvested, underdeveloped is a major piece. I just, when I was in DC the other day, someone mentioned a stat that said about by 2053, black communities would have zero wealth, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, and right. if we maintain where we are today, it would take us 227 years to catch up to where white folks today. That's with no additional Oh, good Lord. Earnings. Yeah, it's, so, it's like the statistics around global warming, you know, unless we do something really dramatic. You know, and it's interesting you're talking about the, the, the economic apartheid, which is an expression that I've, I've used a lot. And, you know, uh, Lawrence Brown's work on the... Uh, the the white owl and the black butterfly and you know the combination the com the concept that you know Baltimore is the city that invented redlining and uh, you know there's there's just so much to heal and 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 you're just doing amazing stuff so you know you talked about being invited to other cities and the exit to community and this that and the other and 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 you know I'm amazed to hear that when I asked you about how how busy you are and how grown you are you're like no man I'm right on plan everything's fine we're all good. Um, which is which is uh, a, a wonderful thing to be able to say. Um, so it's clear to me that these next couple of steps, the exit to community, the so on and so forth, that's already sort of baked into your plan. So after that, what's next? Yeah, I don't know. I think <laughs> the idea that can we can it can we replicate this in other cities? Right, because there's folks that want us to come, but I think sometimes people see the directory, they see the micro grants, but not necessarily the deeper work. Mm. And so that's what we want to really be able to scale. And you have to do that place based. Like people in those communities have to take time to build relationships and build trust. And so that's really what I'm committed to long term of like what this works look like to have this sort of liberatory framework and how you can put this in other communities or other communities can use these tools. Um, to advance the work or black social impact in their community. I'm getting ready to so, hire a, a chief operating officer. So uh, You heard it here first, folks. Call Jamie. Jamie's got jobs. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, so I'm super excited about what that opens up and what they'll bring to the table to even expand this beyond my own thinking. Right, right. It also might get you a, a few minutes to actually breathe and, and go back and say hi to your daughter or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> whatever else is needed there. Um, so, you know, that that in and of itself to me is fascinating because, you know, when when you hear, to go back to the conversation we had about scale a minute ago, when, when you hear sort of this notion of scale, it's, okay, we're going to pick this up and drop this down into other communities. And if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is, look, you know, I'll come to your city and I'll show you how to do this, but I'm not going to do it for you because I don't have the, the the depth of community that you already have. And that in and of itself is such a such an, an amazing, empowering notion and so different from this typical notion that you hear so much about scale. You know, I mean, so is there a filter 
for you in terms to say, okay, so this city is a place where this could happen and this other city isn't? Yeah, I probably would look at, we've been asked by various cities, but there's certain cities that stick out because they have demographics that are similar to Baltimore. So that that's something that I, I consider. Um, so Detroit, Pittsburgh. Yeah, Dorm, North Carolina was one of the first ones as well. So there's, there's cities that says, okay, this makes sense. But for me, it's more of finding the right people. We And we know, like, wherever there are people, people are organizing, whether you know it or not, whether they have a brand or not, like, they are committed to this work. And so folks don't need Jamie or collectively. Sometimes it might be tools that may amplify their work or help them maybe work smarter or closer together. But I'm clear that wherever there are people, they're, they're doing this work. Yeah, and and sometimes you know people need, need just need a playbook and a, and a, and a map, and you can say, okay, do this. And you're absolutely right that you know wherever there, there's people, there's people that are organizing. There's so much going on in organizing right now with you know Starbucks unionizing and Amazon unionizing. It's it's a great it's a great moment in our history for community organizing and and community labor. Uh, and and I'm just I'm thrilled that that we have you. Uh, here in Baltimore, and and I hope you know how much uh, we're in your corner. Um, Jamie, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for your time. Thank you, uh, Best of luck, and uh, I'm sure we'll be in touch again soon. Absolutely. Take care. All right, brother. Peace. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did. If you'd like to explore the world of social innovation further, contact us at graduate.umaryland.edu slash innovation. On behalf of the Graduate School and the entire University of Maryland, Baltimore, I'm Jim Kucher. Thanks for joining us. Peace.